Her father knelt next to her. I do love you, Alexandra, he whispered. I am sorry for the things I've had to do, and for the things I will have to do in the future, and I am sorry for this. He raised his wand to her temple, and Alexandra didn't remember anything after that. Hello, once again, and welcome back to the Remedial Magic Podcast, a podcast hosted by myself, Brady, my brother Baylor, and our good friend Delbert, three of the least deranged, most straight-shooting podcast hosts you've ever listened to, if you don't count, like, the last four episodes we've uploaded. Um, welcome back to the studio, guys. Hello. Yeah, I'm back. glad to be back. With I've... pneumonia. I've determined that these episodes go any which direction, so I just I've I've learned just to sit back and enjoy the ride, so to speak. I think that's the right way to approach these and uh I have to be honest with you, the chapters we are talking about this week are pretty messed up, man. Especially chapter thirty five. It is. Abraham Thorne is a little weasel. He's a little scummy scum. He's a bad boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> regardless, regardless of that, um, we are talking about Alexander Quick and the Lands Below. We're on chapters 34 and 35 this week. Chapter 34 being called Beneath Charmbridge and chapter 35 being titled Return to Roanoke. I have a bone to pick with us. As a, as a whole, I have a problem with us right now. I'm ready. If we weren't super lazy jack wagons, we could have released our final episode of this season on our one-year anniversary of starting the podcast. You're right. We talked about this like six weeks ago, and then I got what seemingly was COVID and we, died. <laughs> we had a chance to do something cool, and instead we're just releasing this random arbitrary episode roughly on the one year anniversary of our podcasts, the 364th day anniversary right. of our podcast when this one comes out. Which so you're telling me the book two finale will be the first one after the calendar year. Book two finale will be season two, year two, episode one. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. I, I th- yeah. I th- but – I think it might be the second episode of the new year, but that's just me. Oh, true. It will be the second one, actually. Two, two, two. Year two, season two, episode two, book two. Yeah. But I just wanted to uh, first complain about our lack of forethought with that, and then secondly, congratulate you guys on one year of this podcast, and so I just wanted to say, get out the drinks you were supposed to bring and crack those o- suckers open and give them a chug. I got mine here, boys. Happy to be here. What a ride. I'll have you all know that I can't tell whether it's a kickstart, sparkling <coughs> ice, or kombucha that Bree just <laughs> went after. <coughs> oh, God. Oh, dear. I'm guessing sparkling water <laughs> by I, that reaction. I apologize. Uh, 
I'm psyched about one year of this podcast, though. I have to say that much. Well, you'll have to wait until Monday. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Unfortunate. Uh, I felt the carbonation come out of my eyes. We're celebrating <laughs> the one-year podcast anniversary in Vegas. That's true, actually. We yeah. will be in Las Vegas at When We Were Young Fest when this episode comes out, assuming it hasn't been canceled by the wind. True. So, uh, looking forward to that as well, and... Uh, I heard that the fan meetup with the Fast Five podcast went pretty well at this previous weekend's when we were young fest. Uh, there was lots of people walking down the strip screaming the name Tanner, and I'm excited to talk to him about how that went. Uh, it was nice of him to represent us in that fashion. Excellent. I am disappointed Is there to any say Harry- <laughs> that the greatest host will unfortunately not be in Vegas this weekend, so... Uh, if you're if you're wanting to see it's me, it's true. The, Howard Stern, we probably won't we probably won't be seeing him. Indeed, this weekend. indeed, and also uh, Baylor, the B, will not be there as well. You could have gone. I could have. Yeah, I, I know. I just you still could, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. You could buy a ticket right now. You never know. StubHub, SeatGeek. Head over to the Luxor at approximately twelve oh five p.m. on Saturday, uh, the 29th, for our unofficial fan get together. Um, you might see me there. You might we'll not be. We'll be in the venue by then. Uh, yeah, the the unofficial get together. We'll meet. We'll meet next to that one naked guy at the human body exhibit. What inside the Luxor? Isn't that all of them? Yeah, it's part of the fun. I see. Make sure you bring a gift. True. Make sure you bring lots of gifts and give them to the first person you see wearing a hat and glasses. That's us. Exactly. No matter what is said. If you don't bring enough gifts, you will be forced to live in the Luxor forever or sacrifice your brother, one of the two. Okay with that. So, so, anyways, uh, happy one-year anniversary to all you listeners who have stuck with us for the entirety of the one year of this podcast. I have no idea how many total episodes we will have released by this point. It's got to be like 50. But it's got to be high 40s, maybe 50s. Uh, it's not in the 50s, but it's close. And so I have to say, of all the projects that we've come up with over the years, all the stupid YouTube ideas and other podcast ideas, I am surprised that this is the one that we've actually seen through as much as we have. Right. So... Uh, with that being said, and all that out of the way, celebrations taken care of. Uh, half of a sparkling ice spilled on the front of my shirt. Uh, has there been any Harry Potter news this week that you guys know of? There's news. Okay. It's not Harry Potter related. Okay. <laughs> Kanye is terrible. Uh, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. We can take an official podcast stance about denouncing Kanye. Yeah. That's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, I'm into that. He is a scumbag. I also didn't realize this until today, but he said Adidas can't drop me because even if I say anti-Semitic stuff, to which Adidas has now dropped him, Adidas is a German company. Hmm. <laughs> What in the world? I didn't know they were German first off, but second off, what a claim to say they wouldn't drop you over anti-Semitic stuff based in Germany. Dude, I just don't know with him. Like, obviously, he's a person who needs some professional help. Yeah. But 
No, in my opinion, no amount of mental illness excuses his behavior. No. I mean, I liked Pete Davidson's uh, take on it. He was talking about Kanye, and he's like, I'm off the pills. I can see. And Pete Davidson's like, take them. <laughs> Just take <laughs> the pills, man. Uh, it would be good if he would do something like that. But regardless of that, luckily Kanye is not tainting the Harry Potter world at all, and uh, we can hang our hat on that. And also, I guess, if we're going to talk about Kanye, did you know he has his own private academy? It's called, like, the Yee School or something? I did not. I had no And idea. did you know that instead of saying the Pledge of Allegiance every morning at his school, they'd say the Pledge of Allegiance to Kanye nice. or something like that? It's called Donda Academy. It's not yet accredited. What a weird thing. Yeah. Hmm. Just a bizarre world we live in. Yeah. I was trying to figure this out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe this is it. I think it like starts out with I I pledge allegiance to the ye. <laughs> nice allegiance <laughs> so, to the ye. <laughs> uh, what an idiot boy. he is! But as far as I can tell, there's not really any other Harry Potter news of note. We haven't had any deaths of prominent actors this week, or really any other outlandish things being said by people in the Harry Potter world. So I think. We should just jump into these chapters that we're going to talk about. True. Yeah. As I said, we're talking about chapters 34 and 35 this week of Alexandra Quick in the Lands Below. Chapter 34 is called Beneath Charmbridge, and chapter 35 is called Return to Roanoke. And as a reminder, uh, last episode mixed in with our hilarious banter and off-topic discussions, we discussed... uh, The Generous Ones, this mysterious population of house elf adjacent creatures. Uh, And then we were shocked and appalled to read that uh, Maximilian had to sacrifice his life in order to accomplish his father's mission for him in the lands below. And so he gave his life to the Generous Ones who then sent him on to... The lands beyond a place he cannot return from and they promptly try to do that to Alex as well but she at the start of chapter 34 is in the midst of her daring escape from the generous ones and there was a part of this chapter that I hadn't ever considered before until rereading it uh, to have this discussion and that's the fact that Alex when she leaves this area on her broom has absolutely no clue where she is because they didn't travel all the way there the first time. They got transported there magically. So even if she escapes the generous one, she is absolutely not out of the water. Right. Yeah, definitely. The escape seems horrifying in itself, I think, because the generous ones have cast these spells that cause vermin to just, like, attack Alex, like bugs and bats and this other stuff and that um that seems pretty 
terrible uh, to go through, uh, but it's also kind of on par with the other stuff we've seen in the lands below to this point. There's just some pretty horrific things going on down there from dear ladies trying to seduce Max to uh, killer rabbits with very sharp teeth to the generous ones putting you into, under a burden of generosity. So overall, the lands below is a place that I, I just can't recommend. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend traveling there. It's almost like the rated R version of like uh, Narnia, basically. Like there's all these fan- fantastical beasts beasts in there, but they just all are, are trying to kill you. So it's, That's true. If Chronicles of Narnia started with Mr. Tumnus trying to seduce all the children, that would have been pretty wild. I completely agree. That is actually a a good way to put that, to be honest. It is it's kind of like a twisted version of a place like Narnia where there's all these seemingly innocent creatures that are actually uh, pretty scary and twisted for various reasons, uh, whether that be what we've described already or I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff in the lands below that we we haven't read about at all that's equally, if not more, terrifying. One thing I was going to ask you guys is, do you think the generous ones are like the final bosses of the lands below, or do they just happen to be what what feels like the final bosses because that's what our story's interested in? I feel like there's probably even worse stuff out there. I would assume so, right? Like, I guess I don't, we still don't really know how they uh, treat with the lands beyond or whatever the case is to where they're able to sacrifice Max and get this token in return. But it seems as if they're more, I don't know, almost like watchers as opposed to heroes or villains. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think, honestly, that the generous ones might be some of the more innocent creatures that exist down here. Like, I think if you were to look at an alignment chart, they might just be true neutral. Possibly. They could be lawful evil. Maybe. If they're, if they're so, if they adhere to their belief system so much that they're willing to kill people because they fell under some code or whatever, that might make them lawful evil, but they didn't really seem like they were out to just kill. Right. It seems to me like... They're like the government of the lands below, and I say that because they can basically decide who comes and goes in the lands below. Um, do I think that they're, they're the worst thing out there? No, because I'm sure that there's some other stuff that'd probably kill you on the on the spot instead of try to trick you into being you know into some burden of generosity like you were saying earlier, Brady. But uh, they're almost like the the overseer. Yeah, the, I, I like the watcher that you said, Delbert. I, yeah, I think that's how I describe them as well. Yeah, I mean, if I was faced between having to deal with a generous one or having to deal with a full-grown underwater panther, I'm choosing the generous one. Yeah, right. Right away. Right. Probably, and you know, your watcher description is kind of apt because it seems like they're the ones who decide who can leave the lands below. Like, right. once you're there, it seems like they're the ones who can decide if you're allowed to go back yep. or not. Alex does get away from the generous ones. In fact, she gets a long ways away before I think she kind of comes to the realization that 
oh shoot, I have no idea where I am. I don't know how we got here. And it even says that she realizes it could be just a few miles or maybe they got transported over a thousand miles away. And it would be impossible for her to tell. Except for that Max didn't give away his entire kit. He kept at least one really important piece, which was the lost traveler's compass. And he managed to slip that into Alex's pocket uh, before he passed away. And so because of that forethought from Max, it gives us hope that Alex can get out of this place. And then at the same time as her realizing she has this compass, she also starts being talked to by her father, Abraham through that locket that he gave her so long ago. So it goes from, I'm sure for Alex from very hopeless to, okay, maybe I can get out of here. Hopefully, you know, Well, that definitely was her saving grace, I would say. Um, I mean, you got to give it to Max. Like, he he was maybe a little unprepared, but he overprepared on the survival aspect of things. Um, and I'm say, I say unprepared because he wasn't prepared for the generous ones, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's more like underprepared because he was pretty much prepared for the lands below. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, without the compass, who knows where we're at. Um, so, good job, Max. Also, what a terrifying picture later in her journey when she does find the caves with the help of the compass. And the only thing she has is just her, like, brief wand light, and she's, like, sailing through these caves, like, trying to avoid walls and stuff. I mean, we get a mental image of it because she says she almost falls into the water because... She gets so close that she finally sees the reflection of the light. So it's not like she can see where she's going. She's just, like, reacting whenever something comes in front of her. Yeah, it's got to be scary traveling across this place on her own. Yeah. Even if she has the relative safety of her broom compared to walking, uh, it's such an unknown location for her. And it's like I've told you before, Delbert, the lands below feels like an incredible place to send a and d party. Right. Because it's so unique and so different than what normal life looks like. Uh, I have to ask, and I know I always paint Abraham in a bad light, but I think it's because he deserves to be painted in a bad light. But when he's here talking to Alex through this locket, he lets her know that he can't get to her, that he's tried to apparate to her and he can't get there. He doesn't know why. I'm thinking it's because he doesn't have permission through an obol or through the generous ones. Uh, but his last thing, essentially, that he says to her is, come back, like, come back to the lands above. And then when she kind of defies that and tells him, you're no help anyways, I have to, I can't, you can't help me, so go away. He, there's a flash of anger coming from Abraham, and I'm wondering if that flash of anger coming from Abraham is indicative of his worry for Alex, or if it's more indicative of his worry that this token that he so desperately needs that he was willing to get one of his children killed for won't make it out of the lands below and back to him. I personally can't really tell. Um, I mean, he, he genuinely seems like a, a caring father in this moment, in my opinion. Um, I do. 
obviously, if you know, if if it was in t- his intention for them to get killed, one of them to get killed in order for him to get this thing, then yeah, I, I would think it's mostly for the uh, the this charmed thing to come back versus just Alex to come back. If that makes sense, it does make sense. I just wonder because. Later on, actually in the next chapter, Abraham apologizes to Alex for the things he's done as well as the things he's going to have to do as well as the things that might happen even past that. And so I just don't know. I mean, some of his concern has to be that, oops, I just sent my son to die. What if this token doesn't get back to me? Right? Right, maybe. If he thought he could just apparate into the lands below to help Alex get out of there, he probably would. Logic would dictate that he would be thinking, I could have apparated in to just help them with this mission to begin with. So the fact that he didn't try that, or at least we don't get an indication that he tried that to begin with, also kind of constitutes a problem in that he didn't make that effort when he had the chance to to begin with. So I'm leaning the other way that this is almost entirely about the locket because, and this is, <laughs> this is a outside the Harry Potter world, but in breaking bad for those that have watched it, there is a scene where Jonathan Banks character, Mike Ehrmantraut has to choose between staying with his granddaughter or fleeing from the police. And he chooses to leave and try to like, be free basically and Jonathan Banks the actor criticized that scene and said I don't care what the writers say I don't care what Vince Gilligan says Mike Ehrmantraut would have stayed because more important than his freedom was his granddaughter the fact that when Abraham does make his appearance back on the basement of Charmbridge here he is worried more about the authorities than about his seemingly dead son and his daughter that is hysterical for good reason. So I once again think he just does not care about his kids. They're pawns in his game. Even if he does care, let's say he does care. I'm sure he does in some degree, but even if he does, his main concern I don't think can be them in this moment because if they don't get back, if Alex doesn't bring this locket back, then everything that just happened is a waste of time anyways. Right, but I'm even right. talking after she does finally make it back and they're having that conversation, he has the locket and he still doesn't seem to give a shit, quite frankly, about his daughter or Max. I mean, we can talk about that now, to be honest, because he talks to her while she's in the lands below and then... Very quickly past that, she manages to escape, right? Right. She gets out of the lands below more easily maybe than I thought would happen at first. She just kind of flies back towards the ceiling where they fell through to begin with. There's no ritual she has to go through or anything like that. Makes sense, though. She has the locket. She does have the locket. Yeah. And so she gets out, and then the next thing we know, she's unconscious on the floor being... Awakened by Abraham. 
who's there next to her, in the basement of Charmbridge, a place he said he could never go, right? And now he's there. And again, is he there for Alex? Or is he there because he knows I can get the locket and get out of here before anybody else gets to Alex? Because I know she's been down in the lands below and nobody else does. I mean, just just for a counterpoint, because might as well. Um, The first thing he does do is he does tend to Alex. Heals her up. Makes things stop hurting, whatever. And then they talk, talk about Max. And then Alex kind of goes into a little bit of a rampage. But, like, the locket wasn't the first thing that he was wondering about uh, when, when she arrived. So I, I do think there's at least some care for his kids. Um, I don't know. You guys know more than me, obviously, but... Uh, I don't know. I'm very this this book has done nothing but conflict conflict me. So, fantastic job, Inverarty, you bastard. <laughs> it's uh something about it is that I think it's hard maybe for maybe like you and you and I Baylor to consider a viewpoint that maybe he doesn't care for his kids at all because we don't live in that world necessarily. We don't really have like a relationship like that with a parent figure in our lives. Um, Damn. What? Just wrecking me right there. I can't talk from your perspective. Oh, okay. Baylor and I are from the same family. Fair. That's what I know about. But <laughs> but regardless of that, you know, it's tough to say with him because my honest opinion, not based on anything I know past this book, my honest opinion of just his actions so far in the series to where we've gotten to is that even if he does care about Alex, I think he cares about his ambitions more. And so I think his ambitions color his actions much more than his forethought about how it's going to impact his children does. Yeah, it definitely hasn't looked good on him the last couple chapters, for sure. Also, he does something unforgivable to me at the end of this chapter. It's pretty bad. Right. He obliviates Alex Alex, and takes away all memory of the lands below and what happened to Max. Yep. Which means not only is she going to be very confused when people question her about what's going on, she's also going to have to go through the initial grief of losing her brother again. And he's the only person, I think, in my estimation, the only person she's ever felt like a strong familial connection with. Yeah, that was pretty bad. I was pretty upset after after reading that. Especially given the other He's fan fictions and other fan films that we've talked about. Like, Obliviation, we've... Forever, that's been the podcast dance that Obliviation is the wrong thing to do. So... It's uncool, for sure. And I don't think he was going to Obliviate her until... She basically told him, like, you're an ass. What you're doing isn't okay. You're wrong for this. What about Max? And instead of trying to talk to her and have a conversation, it was just easier for him to erase her memory so he could get out of there with his prize. Yeah. Yeah. He's a jerk, man. He's right up there with Yi. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Bad people. Yep. Pledge allegiance to the Yi. So, Alex does escape. 
in this chapter, which because there's more books, as we've joked about many times, you know is going to happen. I think her escape is much more harrowing, even knowing that she's going to get out, than a lot of the stuff that uh, like Harry goes through in the mainline series. right? I think if you're reading this for the first time and you don't know there's three other books that have been released, you might genuinely question how Alex is going to get out of this situation uh, and, and live to continue on the tale. Moving on to chapter 35, uh, Return to Roanoke. We see the effects of this memory charm that Abraham uses on Alex immediately. Because immediately, we're made aware that Alex gets told that M finds her in the basement. And she has no idea what's going on. She doesn't know where her brother is. And she's being interrogated by the WWJD instantly, and she doesn't know why. She can't remember why. And so that's got to be a very, very tough thing to return to consciousness into. Yeah, I would say the saddest moment for me was when she was asking people where Max was. That uh, obviously wasn't great to read again. <laughs> like you said, go through that it's pretty initial tough. grief again. Yeah. It's got to feel horrible for her because now not only is Max gone and dead, they tell her that, she doesn't know how or why it happened. You know, the the first time she goes through it, at least she has a reasoning behind it. She knows what happened. She knows why Max had to die. And here, she has no idea. It's like if you just went home and uh, the per- other people living at your house said, your dog's dead. And when you say why, they say, I don't know, just dead. You know? Yeah. This interrogation uh, of the WWJD with Alex is... Well, first of all, it's not fruitful for the WWJD. It's Mr. It's Richard Raspire and Diana Grimm are there. Lilith Grimm is trying to protect Alex as much as she can, which is nice to see. Also... I came to the realization that we've like not really had Lilith Grimm in this whole story. She's been there very little. Uh, but here she is protecting Alex, telling her sister Diana, like, hey, she's not in a position to talk to you right now. You don't need to talk to her. It's not cool what you're doing, essentially. And very quickly, she's shut down by Diana and Raspire. Them both essentially saying, yeah, well, we can do whatever we want because the government gives us permission to. Right. We once again see here the power that this special inquisitorial squad has. Being able to shun the dean from her own, basically a room in her school from protecting her student. And then further on, jumping ahead a little bit in the interrogation, they use Veritaserum. True. And I do mean true. Yeah. I mean, they do use Veritaserum on her. Uh, They ask her a few things. And essentially the answer to all of those things is that Alex doesn't remember. I don't know what's going on. Right? 
You and Max disappeared for a week and you came back with his wand. Where were you? I don't know. You used the obol you stole from Darla Dearborn, didn't you? I don't remember. You went to the underworld. How did you come back? I don't know. I don't remember. I'm sure this is very frustrating for Alex. I bet it's even more frustrating for these government figures who are supposed to figure out the answers to these questions. Well, especially once they find out that Abraham did obliviate his own daughter. Because then what can they do? Nothing. The answers are gone. They can't say anything. And I will say that as much as I don't like the fact that Abraham obliviated Alex, it's effective. Was he going to do it regardless? I don't know. Both her and Max, had they made it back? It seemed reactionary to me when he did it. It did, but I'm sure he also didn't want to know what he let the government know what he had bargained for. And Max had said, he tells us what he can knowing that they'll, you know, question you. So I wonder if he was going to do this all along. I do wonder if that's the case. I. We don't really know if they've ever used Veritas Serum on Max before when they've been interrogating him or anything. My The reason I think that it's, I say that I think it's reactionary is because Alex was so furious in the moment that I'm sure Abraham listened to her and thought to himself, oh, she's mad enough that she might like tell people what's going on here right. without them even like questioning it. And so then he does it as a precaution. That's, that's kind of exactly that what I thought. Yeah, it was more like she was kind of out of control, and he couldn't control her anymore, so to speak, so he decided to reinstate that control. Whatever his reason for obliviating Alex was, it's effective, and it works because she says, I don't know, to all these questions, and then Raspire pulls out the Veritas Serum, gives it to Alex, she drinks it, and then all of her answers are exactly the same. She still doesn't know. She still doesn't remember. And that's when Raspire is kind of aghast and shocked and amazed that Abraham Thorne obliviated his own daughter to get away with this. And I have to say, if Raspire, second in command to the Governor General Huckstein, is surprised that Abraham Thorne would do this, I think it makes our surprise and outrage about it equally justified. Yeah. Because this is a man who surely believes Abraham Thorne is capable of any number of horrible things, and he is shocked that he obliviated his own daughter as well. Yeah, it's not a good look. (laughs) Alex goes to the hospital wing, or... The infirmary, I think, is what it's called. In these books, and... I mean, she gets out pretty quick. She has kind of a small conversation with Dean Grimm, which I didn't like at all because Dean Grimm is just a jerk in this conversation. Um, Basically tells Alex that we didn't tell your mom, and when Alex is like, what are you meaning you didn't tell my mom I was missing for a week? Dean Grimm essentially says, yeah, well... Muggles don't understand these things. Yeah. Uh, so another thing, another part in this in this chapter where I was like, man, sometimes the wizarding world really, <laughs> really sucks. 
it's it's almost like even though Muggleborns have been integrated in society for a, a long time, I'm assuming because they've probably been around for a long time. Uh, somehow they still don't know how to handle like guardianship for a Muggleborn. You know, like it it doesn't make any sense why they wouldn't tell them that they're daughter is missing like that's all they got to say you know I don't know the only thing I can think is that they're trying to protect the statute of secrecy but it's it's like in the most barbaric caveman way yeah you know instead of trying to find an actual solution the answer to all of this is just to say well muggles are stupid so they don't need to know right right and that's not functional or effective for Muggle-born children, because imagine being 12 or whatever Alex is in this book, 13 maybe, and going home and knowing, well, if I tell my family about this, they're going to bust my ass for it at school or in the wizarding world, right? It's like 11 and 12-year-olds don't have a functioning brain. Right. How can you expect them to deal with stuff like this in silence? You can't. It makes no sense. Really doesn't. What'd you guys think of all the interaction between Alex and her friends <laughs> after she gets out of the infirmary and goes back to her dorm room? Anna, of course, has been very worried. Uh, the Pritchards have been worried. David's even there, excited that Alex is back. I don't know, dude. I don't know if I could be friends with Alex. <laughs> Damn. Like it's pretty dark. Well, legitimately, I don't know if I could handle the stress of being friends with Alex. Maybe I'm boring, but I don't know. It is interesting though, because we get to see reuniting with Anna and then Angelique. And then we also hear Anna had to tell Dean Grimm everything once the WJD agents arrived. And all the members of the Moore's Mortis Society, 13 of them, I guess, are all expelled. Yeah. It's pretty cool. John Manuelito and Darla and Sue Fox. Do we even know if John Manuelito is alive at this point? I don't know. That's a good question, actually. last, (laughs) Last we saw from that guy, he was being... His head was being bashed against the wall over and over. Stone walls. You know? Yeah. He just has a concussion. He's all right. But no longer at school, it's, obviously. I mean, they've expelled all the members of the Moore's Mortis Society, and once again, that's good. It's a good thing that they did that because they are. we've found out that some of them are legitimately dangerous people, should not be in the school, Right. Darla did the equivalent of bringing a gun to school and shooting at somebody and was allowed back in. She should have never been allowed back in to begin with. Oh, you're right. Right? Yeah. And she's allowed back in, but now she's finally expelled, which is great. Can't we solve a lot of problems by just expelling the people we know are in the Moore's Mortis Society at the beginning of the school year? Yeah, but no one ratted. You know? Yeah. They had the uh, oath. They yeah. had the oath, but Dean Grimm knew about the Moore's Mortis Society. Right. I mean, yeah, it's it's very reminiscent of the original Harry Potter series. Like, if someone would have just told an adult, a lot of the things wouldn't have happened. True. So, 
I don't know. It is absolutely true. It's just uh, a point of endless anxiety that we have to deal with while reading all of these books related to Harry Potter. I also like to think about whatever the headmaster or dean or sergeant or whatever it is of BMI, the conversation they had with Diana or, or uh, Lilith Grimm. Oh, I bet they're pissed. They're like, oh, one of our students is missing. Well, what a shame. Do you know where they went? The underworld. It's in our basement. Also, they died. <laughs> yeah. They're not coming back because they're dead. What in the world, Yeah, man. dude. All, all student <laughs> exchange programs with Charmbridge canceled. They should be, yeah. I can't believe Martin and Beatrice are still here. Here we are, right? Can you give me an update on how Maximilian King is doing at your school? Oh, well, he joined a society for the dark arts that we know about, but we're not doing anything about. He went to the underworld, and now he's dead. Yeah. Also, Abraham Thorne broke in. Right. Because yeah. the Aurors knew. You right? know? Like, what a ridiculous conversation that would be. Yeah. And to be honest, I bet Lilith Grimm would just talk down to the guy. Right. He would. He'd make him. She'd make him feel like it's his fault. Yeah. For sure. It's your fault. You sent him here. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, more important than all that stuff that happens at school, though, regardless, is the fact that Alex does get permission to travel to Croatoa for. The funeral, she writes to Julia and lets Julia know that she got permission, but also says that she won't go if they don't want to see her. I'm sure Alex has a a pretty large degree of guilt when it comes to, it's like survivor's guilt, like the worst kind of survivor's guilt. Made worse by the fact that Abraham Thorne obliviated her, and so she doesn't remember why she's feeling the guilt. Yep, <laughs> made worse 100%. Yep. But Julia, ever the the politician, ever the nice, sweet girl in Alex's life, tells her, yes, of course you're going to come, and you're going to stay at our house. Don't be foolish. And that's really big, I think, for Alex, because as it's been established, her mom doesn't even know that this is happening. And not only does she not know that this is happening... What could she say to Alex if she did know? She's already told Alex, hey, I get that you're a witch. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear about it. So it's nice that Alex still has kind of a mother and sister figure that she can go to about this stuff, even if it is the unfortunate mother and sister of the dead brother that Alex went to the underworld with and arguably participated in his death. Right. Yeah. Sticky situation for sure, but I do like how it's handled. I like how Inverarity set it up with Alex thinking, damn, Max has known me like eight months and now he's dead because of me. Yeah. And like expecting her to be like ousted from the family. But it makes equal sense that Julia and Miss King are like, nah, health. Screw that. Yeah. Well, get over here. I get, I would guess that being the sensible people they are, they blame their father much yeah, more than Alex. It seems like that's the case. Yeah. I do think it's pretty cool that, uh, I, morbidly cool, I suppose, but pretty cool that the way that everybody knew Max was dead because he didn't come back, they didn't have proof of a body or anything, is that the ghosts the family ghosts on Croatoa were able to tell everybody that they could sense him passing into the afterlife. I think that's 
a pretty cool way to make use of the ghost mechanics that exist in the wizarding world. Yeah. Definitely an underutilized thing in the original series. I'm glad that it was used somehow right there. (laughs) I think so too. Uh, Something really cool happens here. Uh, Again, this whole, everything that happens in this chapter is pretty morbid because it's centered around the death of a character, the death of Alex's brother, but Miss King pulls out a pensive and lets Alex use it to kind of experience what it was like when Max was younger. And not only when Max was younger, but also, I believe, when Abraham and Miss King were still a thing. Right. Seems that way, yeah. Which is a sense of family that Alex just, frankly, hasn't had. And it kind of goes through a little slideshow of Max's life. Just just sort of different moments in his life, and Alex gets to experience those. And I'm sure that that feels... I'm sure that that feels cathartic. Sad, but cathartic as well. That she gets to learn a little bit more about what Alex is like. Um, so that's a very nice thing that Miss King does. And also, not only that, it seems that Miss King is going to help Alex. Regain some of her memories. Yeah. Using this pensive. Yeah. Because it turns out, as we said early in this episode, that Abraham did not obliviate her, but rather just removed her memories for a time. Yeah, took her memories out of her head a la Dumbledore. Yeah, and just kind of held on to them. Probably studied them pretty extensively. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then offered to return them. Yeah. It begs the question, is that better than obliviating her? Probably. Not by much. Mechanically, yeah, probably. Yeah. Because he didn't just steal her memories. She still had to deal with her brother's death now three times. Correct. Of when it happened, when she was told about it, and now again seeing it again for the first time. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. My personal opinion is that's better than obliviation. Um, And it kind of lends to the idea that it was more of a strategic thing that Abraham did because he didn't, he knew that they were going to be interrogated, sorry, interrogated, interrogated. I don't know how to say that word when they got out of the lines below. So he pulled out her memories, made her not even be able to tell the people, you know, uh, Raspire, uh, the other Grim, anything about what happened. Um, because in my eyes, he knew that they were going to use something other than just basic interrogation to try to get the answers. So I- in my mind, it's it's better than Obliviation because it can be returned. And also, it. I think he was going to do it regardless of what happened in the cave. You know, I agree with you that it it is certainly better. Uh, one thing I don't like about it is that he's removing her agency because it's going to benefit him in the long run. But 
Uh, that's just something that I think Abraham is going to do regardless. So the fact that he kept them for her, even if he kept them, Delbert, as you say, to study them so he can figure out more about the lands below and then return them to her, that is that is infinitely better than if he had just obliviated her and took those memories away yep. entirely. Yep. I think that's just very Abraham the great news esque So I, I it is. think he'll just do that whenever he wants. <laughs> the great news also is that he gives it to Miss King or delivers it to Miss King and she gives Alex the choice. And she explains, you don't have to have these if you don't want, if they're going to be too painful. And there's definitely things in life like that I've experienced. I'm sure this is the truth for almost everybody where sometimes you think, you know, if I could just not remember that, that would maybe be better. And so the fact that Alex has that choice here is I think a positive thing, but even more positive is the fact that she is very strongly against not having those memories. She wants to know. And I think that gives her strength against uh, whatever is going to come forward is the fact that she's not shying away from this really horrible moment. Yeah, I agree as well. That's where the chapter ends. Yeah. Miss King gives Alex back her, these memories. Uh, We don't see Alex's reaction to them as much, so much. Uh, We do read that she gasps as they pour back into her head, as I'm sure she begins to relive all of this once again, but a pretty sad couple of chapters. I think, I mean, there's a lot we didn't touch on Beatrice and Martin are very upset. Of course, understandably, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. The entirety of the BMI class that Martin or that, Max is a part of comes to the house to apologize and to like pay their respects to Miss King. Uh, Julia, I can't imagine Julia how she is. She's so bright and bubbly normally. And Max is, I think, the most important person in her life as well. And now he's gone. So there's a lot of, I think, ripple effects that we're going to see come out of this death. Right. Yeah. Mildly off topic in the chapter, but not pertaining to anything with Max. I am so interested in the history that we're never going to probably hear about from Inverarity. Same thing with J.K. Rowling, some of the stuff that has been talked about, but we don't have any literature on. Just the thing where he's talking about the important vote on the Magikai issue and those paleo-pagans from Mesa. I want to know what that is yeah, so that's, bad. that's pretty cool. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> That is pretty cool. There's there's nice things sprinkled in right. in this book that you're right, you're probably not going to ever hear about, but it's cool to think about yeah. for sure. I also enjoyed the little the little flavor there of Miss King saying, "Dear, I could give a crap less about the Wizard yeah. of Congress right now." I I thought that was kind of funny. I just gave birth. Here's your son and you're talking to me about the magic yeah. guy and yeah. the paleo pagans. Yeah. Holy moly. I want to finish this discussion off with just asking you guys a question. It's not a simple question. It's just a question. Uh, Do you think Max's death is going to prove necessary going forward? And what I mean is, do we think Alex 
can grow into her full potential if Max stays around. Yes. I think she still would. I do. I think it would be a different story. Like there, there would, well, obviously it'd be a different story, but there would be, um, Alex wouldn't be the Alex we came to know in the first book. If Max was around, I think you said something along the same lines last episode, Brady, but, um, I, I think, you know, Alex would be very, it wouldn't be as exciting as it's been because Alex is known to be this random kind of stubborn, uh, anti authority girl. But upon Max's death, or I guess what Max brought was this kind of order and, uh, authority approach with the whole, uh, uh, J rock. And, and so like, now that Max is gone, I think a lot of that stuff goes away for Alex. And in the third book and going on, we kind of return to more of the anti-authority bullheadedness that we came to know and maybe not love in the first book. So I, I, I think it would be... She would still become of age. It would just be obviously a different coming of age if Max was around. And so I think for the purpose of the story, what Inverary is trying to get at, I think that Max had to die. And for some reason, I saw the writing on the wall earlier in the book when I predicted his death in chapter five. So um, I can't totally remember what caught my attention with that, but I just think that he brought too much order to the story. And with his death, it's going to be a tidal wave of events going forward. That, that'll change the, See, you know, sp- reignite the spark, so to speak, in the book. I kind of disagree, though, because you're right. Like, he tries to bring order, but the only thing Max successfully stopped Alex from doing is dying. He didn't want her to be in the Moore's Mortis Society. She kept going regardless of what he wanted until she was sick of it. She was out there training on brooms in combat against 6th and 7th year BMI students, regardless of what he wanted. He said absolutely no way, stood up to his father even, that Alex will go on me, or go on this mission with me, and yet she still went. So, I think Max tried to put limitations, but failed at every step except in his sacrifice. So, I still think Alex would have, you know, expanded and probably become great. In fact, I think she would become, (laughs) how do I put this, almost like a more loyal servant or a more powerful servant to Abraham than Max had been. It's an interesting question, and it's not, we can't totally answer it because we don't know what goes on in the third book yet, but I tend to agree with you, Baylor, uh, and bear with me. I think if Max had never been introduced, then his death doesn't matter. Like, even if he still exists in the universe. But because he's introduced, I don't think that Max just going back to BMI is enough. I think he has to be completely removed from the situation. And this, to me, is an example of a death. Using death as a tool to advance your main character in a positive way. And the reason why I think that is because I think if Max is still around, even if he's at BMI, 
Alex is going to rely on his guidance too much. Not to stay out of trouble and not to follow authority more, but we saw multiple, multiple occasions in this book where when Alex needed something, Max was the person she went to, and he can't remain that person for the whole series, otherwise he would be the main character because he'd be the one finding and having the answers. So I think his death sets Alex up to take more charge of her own fate rather than needing the help of her big brother to do so. Nobody else is set up to be that kind of influence on her. right? Only Max was set up that way, and so I think having Max involved uh, essentially dampers Alex's potential for growth, and so now that he's not there, she has to take that lead role back. I think that Abraham Thorne said it best when they were discussing things over the Easter holidays in that crypt. I think he said something along the lines that Alex was more clever, more resourceful, and smarter than Max gave her credit for. And I think if Max stays around, even if he is at BMI, like you said, or, you know, the other option, I guess, uh, we don't see that out of Alex as easily as we will now. So, I, uh, yeah, I do think it was important. It's an interesting question. Uh, same question I've asked about several of the deaths in Harry Potter and the difference, I think, between this death and a lot of the deaths in Harry Potter is that I think this one serves as a plot device, whereas a lot of the deaths in Harry Potter, I think, happened because the author felt like she needed to include some consequences. Right. You know, so uh, I'm excited about what has happened here, even though it's sad that Max has died. I think that it sets up a strong potential for Alex in the future. But that's where the arc ends. So we need to name an arc MVP. Indeed. Baylor, why don't you start us off? Cool. Well, I think I'll take the obvious choice and go with Abraham Thorne. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to go with Miss King herself because she was just as awesome as she was earlier in the book. Uh, Kind of... Not only did Julia give that reassurance that they didn't think it was Alex's fault, but I think hearing it from Mrs. King's mouth, her saying that to Alex, uh, meant so much more because typically moms aren't as personal with their stepchildren, if you want to call them that. Uh, So (laughs) maybe I shouldn't say that. I kind of view Alex as Julia's friend, and so like a mom wouldn't be as personal with her daughter's friend, I guess. And so her saying that I think was a big positive for Alex and, and made her even more comfortable for the funeral. Miss King was my backup. Oh, uh, for sure. Nice. So I think that that's a good, good choice. I mean, the fact that she's the one who facilitates the memory recovery, uh, puts her way up there for me that on its own, the friendly warm treatment of Alex is just a bonus. Delbert? Lilith Grimm. Standing up to her sister, standing up to the government, trying to put the student's best interest first. Ultimately fails because there's some weird, like, SS Nazi laws going on in this weird government. <laughs> um, but it was nice to see her, after not seeing her through most of the book, like you said, really standing up for her students and putting their welfare first. Yeah, Lilith Grimm is somebody I definitely considered. Uh, 
I didn't end up going with her because her part is relatively small compared to everything else, but uh, I considered her for the exact same reasons you just listed. Yeah. Yeah, a good choice. My arc MVP, uh, when you consider the, the two chapters, Alex escaping from this place on her own, essentially, um, that is a huge deal, but I also think that that's a given and that Alex was protected by massive plot armor during that time period. Uh, and I am actually going to go with Abraham Thorne as the ARC MVP. He's a jerk. He does things in a way totally opposite to the way I would do things. However, this is a man who sent his 17-year-old son and 12-year-old daughter into one of the most dangerous places that a witch or wizard can go with a plan, and that plan proved successful, and he subverted the government once again, and maybe took into account how his daughter would feel about him stealing her memories and so didn't steal her memories totally. Uh, so far, the dude is the biggest success story of these books. He's accomplished a lot more than the government has, at least from the perspective of what we've read. Right. Yep. Still a terrible person. Still terrible. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Can be a terrible MVP, though. I'm undecided. Done. Terrible things. Great. But great. <laughs> but terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm undecided. Uh, we need to rename this arc as well. So, Baylor, why don't you start us off for that? Awesome. So, this has nothing to do with the death. <clears throat> but I said a cold, rainy day in Roanoke. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Nice. A cold, rainy day in Stoke. Yeah, that, that was the inspiration, <laughs> yes. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Wow. Two weeks in a row, you've come in with a real killer. Right. Um, Delbert, what's, uh, you, what are you renaming this arc? So we talked about it briefly, but Max died. Alex had to deal with that. That did happen. Then she found out that uh, Max was dead and had to deal with that because she didn't have the memories. And then they flooded back, and she had to deal with Max having to die again, right? Yeah. So they're really pile-driving this idea into her head. So we got to go with Tombstone Pile Driver. Oh, my wow. gosh. Wow. Uh, you've both left it up to me, the worst person at this game, to come up with a good one. I actually liked one last ride <laughs> because of the horse thing and all that, but yeah. I can't get away from wrestling now that it's been <laughs> mentioned. Okay. Uh well, those are definitely two of the titles I've ever heard. So. Yeah. Um for my renaming this arc I don't really know to be honest with you. Uh, I've struggled with this one. It. I struggled with this one quite a bit. I like your idea about one last ride and so along that vein, I think um my submission for this arc title would just be Memories. Ooh, okay. That's good. I like it. I would like to input so Deja Vu as my backup. Oh, that's pretty good, too. It's basically Tombstone Pile Driver, but not wrestling related. It's rude. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's rude, yeah. but it's good. That's what Abraham <laughs> would name it. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, okay, we have one last thing to do. Baylor, you... 
had a prediction last week about this arc. Would you please replay that prediction for us now? So first off, I think Charlie does get the lock, the locket back because that is how Alex, that is what Alex uses to get out of the lands below. Uh, she is obviously met with a party of both Charmbridge officials, you know, uh, Dean Grimm's there, you know, the authorities are there, and then there's also some Confederation authorities there as well. Um, Alex is heavily questioned why Max is not with her, um, but she's able to get away for the most part uh, because the locket is as obscure as it seems. There, Nobody knows what it is. Um, moving on, they return to Roanoke because that's where Max's funeral will be held. Uh, Miss King will be grieving for obviously a while. Same thing with Julia. Um, but I do think while they're in Roanoke for this funeral, Abraham Thorne will make an appearance and there will be a showdown versus Alex and Abraham Thorne. All right. Out of order. Out of order. Uh, there's no funeral yeah. in this arc. So I'll just toss that out, I think. Yeah, Abraham Thorne does show up, but not in the second chapter. He shows up almost immediately in the first, or at the end of the first. I really he is a vocal combat. I really think you nailed the theme of yeah. Alex's return, for sure. Right. Um, It wasn't certainly as good as last week's prediction, but... No, definitely not. Uh, I'd give it a seven. I was actually leaning uh eight. Believe it or not. Well, there you go. Nate from Dobert. Roger. Yeah. And do you have a prediction for the final two chapters of this book? Chapter 36, In Memoriam, and Chapter 37, Enemy of the Confederation. Uh, Yes, Dobert. I guess you have questions for us first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dobert, my question for you first. Does Abraham Thorne show up in these chapters? Yes. Brady, are there any battles or big reveals in the upcoming arc? For example, there is. does Abraham show himself and fight some of them confederation bitches? Uh, there's a conflict for sure. Let's just say Abraham creates a problem. Okay. I mean, I... I personally think that leaving it off on Max's death would be a, a poor ending to the story. But here's my prediction. For sure. Upon receiving her mem- memories, Alex simmers silently. At the funeral, nothing major happens other than remembering what was Maximilian King. Then, insanity ensues. For an offer of reconciliation, Abraham Thorne will summon Alex to their ancestor's crypt, but Alex will not be having any of it. Any of it. She will throw curses, meaning words, at the thorny boy, and some other curses, spells, at him too. In other news, to end the book out, Alex will decide to live with the kings in Roanoke. All right. That would classify, in my opinion, as a bold prediction. So I, I wanted to end it on a, I'm on excited. a high note. I'm glad you're, you're hitting an all-or-nothing all or prediction here, and I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that, so... We uh, only have one arc left in this book, and then we'll do a full book episode, and then that will be it for season two of the Remedial Magic podcast. So 
it's been pretty good so far, and I'm excited to finish it off strong the next couple weeks. But we are out of time in the recording studio, so I've been Brady. I've been Delbert. I've been Baylor. We will see you next Sunday. Fuck you, Kanye. Have a good night. Wow. It couldn't just be a normal ending. Wow.